This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through to 11. You're stuck with us now for science for an hour until 12. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. Uh, the weather has changed a bit. Is this your fault? I always like to blame a climatologist. <laughs> no, it's not my fault at all. Of course, we've had, yeah, we've had some record-breaking heat in the mm. last week, and then it's like that. Melbourne. Melbourne brings it home. Gorgeous. Some rain. Mm. I love it. People complaining about it, but uh, I love it personally. Dr. Catherine, I know you hate this weather. Yes, I, I, lo- I love the warmth, so we, I'm a little bit sad. I feel like summer is over. Summer uh, is well and truly over, yes, Dr. Catherine. Yeah, you you, you, you realise it's actually another, you, you're over a, almost a month into another season. Yes, that's right. Yes. Actually, a month and a half into another season. I think it depends on how you define your seasons. <laughs> That was a very climate science answer, wasn't it? Jeez. Uh, We're going to get some news going for you folks, and then we've got uh, quite a group of guests today. We've got a couple of comedians who are going to be talking about some science, apparently in a funny way. We'll see. I don't find science funny at all. And then we're going to talk about some serious stuff after that, so it's going to be fun. But, Dr. Linden, let's start with you with some news from the week. Yeah, well, Dr. Shane, when I was a uni student a few years ago, I remember I did a project that was looking at uh, all the skills that animals had that humans didn't have, kind of to get people thinking about whether humans were the superior species, right? So this, yeah. in this project, we had to develop an imaginary museum exhibit where we would think of, you know, people wearing sticky gloves so they could climb a wall like a gecko or, you know, wear uh, night goggles so they could see like owls or wear a big fat suit so they could keep warm like a polar bear, right? But I read this study this week in Science Advances from a team from the US and Australia that have developed a camera to help people see like a mantis shrimp. Nice. Yeah, so, I mean, we love the mantis Mm. shrimp here at Einstein and Go-Go. It's a little shrimp that's got the world's fastest punch and it can move so quickly that it makes waves that can break glass. Yeah, can I say as a marine aquarium keeper? Do not like the mantis oh, shrimp. I don't like the mantis well, shrimp. Well, if when you know you've got one in your tank, it's bad news. How can it just appear without you knowing? Uh, it? No, when you when you start the tank up and you put live rock or you know actual you know living rock in there, they're often hiding in there and oh. you, they they come in with the with the rock. Really? And then they grow up, and then a little bit later, you start hearing these noises late at night, and you're like. Oh no. Oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. And they can, they can damage things. Yeah. Well, that just makes me love them even more. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but not only is the mantis shrimp a terror for people who keep aquariums, but they've also got really complicated eyes, mm. right? So we've got three color receptors in our eyes and mantis shrimp have up to 16. Wow. Um, and also they can see up to six different types of polarized light. Now that's exciting. That's exciting, isn't yeah. it? So polarized light, you know, light comes down from the sun and it bounces off different surfaces in different directions. Horizontal polarized light is what we're used to. That's what sunnies kind of block out. But the mantis shrimp can also see vertical, mm. two different types of diagonal polarized light and circular polarized light, both clockwise and anti-clockwise. Sorry, as a you know, person whose background is in optical physics, that is phenomenal. It is. It's crazy, yeah. isn't it? It's crazy. And so uh, this new camera, this mantis cam, is now helping scientists try to figure out how and why these animals have such complicated vision structures, right? So we know that different animals use their ability to see polarised light. Bees and dung beetles, they can see polarised light Mm. and they use it 
kind of as a compass to help them figure out where to go across the desert and those kinds of things. And different marine animals too, cuttlefish and octopuses also use polarised light to help with their camouflage. Maybe they can help to communicate with each other. But this new camera, now they've put six different filters in front of the lens so they can see all the different types of, well, see the different types of polarised light that the mantis shrimp can. And what they've figured out is that the mantis shrimp use it not quite like as a compass, but maybe as a bit more of like a GPS, like your blue dot mm. on your phone. Mm. So they took all this footage in different places around the world and they compared the patterns that they saw from the camera with calculated patterns based on the angle of the sunlight and those kinds of things. And they found that the agreement was pretty good. Not perfect, there's a bit of an error, but it does add another level of information about why these creatures have just such complicated eyes. It's also a really cool study as well because it involves scientists and engineers before these engineers came along the scientists were using excuse me using one camera uh, with one filter and kind of turning it manually but now they've got this camera this mantis mm. cam that allows it, them to see it all at all once. once isn't yeah. that amazing it's cool stuff i you know always come back to the same question listeners will know i always ask why the devil did it evolve this capability exactly. to see circularly polarized yeah. light? I mean, what advantage does that give well, the Well, apparently they're the only species in the world that can see these circular polarized patterns and they use mm-hmm. it to communicate apparently because wow. different uh, males and female mantis shrimp give off different uh, patterns of circular polarized light. So they're sending secret messages. I love it. It's great stuff. Beat that, Dr. Catherine. Oh, it's tough. It's very (laughs) tough. Uh, This week I've been reading about characteristics of people's sleeping patterns. So, Dr. Shane, uh, would you say you're a morning person or a late-night person? Yeah, I get up up early in the morning Mm -hmm. um, and you won't get much out of me late at night. Perfect. Well, that, that is that is quite good based on the findings of this research. So this is some really interesting research out of the UK. And they looked at a, a big sample of people, about 440,000 people, and they looked at their sleep characteristics. So they asked people to, to the question that I've just asked you, are you a morning or an evening person? And, and there were four groups. There was people who are definitely a morning person, uh, so they get up early in the morning. Uh, there were people who were probably a morning morning people, people probably a night person, and people who were definitely a night person. So in that last group, they're people who find it very hard to get up early in the morning. Mm. They function very well at the end of the day in the evening. And for them, it's actually very hard with our work hours to to sort of force your body into a cycle where we generally start work at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning. So so that, that final group, it's quite challenging. They've had to sort of uh, forcefully adjust their, their body clock. And the researchers in their prior work had actually found that these characteristics are about equal contribution genetics and environment. So it's not completely what we want to do. There's actually a genetic component to this. So what they were looking at were the consequences of, of these sort of characteristics. And they uh, they followed people up for six to seven years after the survey to follow for deaths and also other diseases. What they found were the people in that late night group that they call night owls were actually at a 10% higher risk of death even when you control for age, other diseases, smoking, weight, all of these other important factors, their mortality rate is actually higher, which is quite incredible. So getting my butt up early in the morning gives me a 10% lower risk of death. Yeah, based on Mm. these findings, yeah, absolutely. So, mm. Dr. Catherine, I used to be a night owl, and now I'm not so much. Is there anything in the studies that say you can change your (laughs) behaviour? You're getting older. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just need to go to bed earlier. Yeah. That is absolutely the next question. That's what the research team are going oh. to look at. What can you do to, can we intervene and help those people transition to a, to being a morning people and what are the consequences? Because it's not only, um, premature death, it's also higher risk of diabetes, cardiovascular mm. disease, uh, poorer mental health. There is a number of outcomes and there's been previous research actually displaying that. They think some of the causation is to do with um, poor health behaviours. Uh, so, you know, you imagine I'm also a morning person, so I find it better to exercise before work. I eat breakfast before work. Those sort of healthy behaviours. If you're mm. a night person, you're probably really struggling just to get up and get to work on yep. time. Yep. And they also said that people who are up late at night, there's a higher risk of sometimes poorer eating habits, sometimes alcohol and drug use and those factors if you're up late at night on your own. So there's there's those risk behaviours that come into it as well. The, the interesting group for me that uh, I suppose hasn't been part of this study but really warrants looking at is shift workers. Yes. Because this yeah. is where you are really messing with your body and some people do it. You know, I have a friend of mine years ago uh, who was a security guard and, you know, he, he did it for years and he said to me that he knew, he could feel after sort of 20 years of it the effect it was having on mm. him that you know trying to sleep during the day and various things when it really wasn't natural to be doing it he knew that it was um yeah. having a detrimental effect so Absolutely. and and i have a lot of friends who are in this situation as well and trying to help yourself stay awake by eating things with lots of mm. sugar and that to try and keep your body awake it'd be very challenging yeah not good no. all right so uh, get up early folks yep, uh, <laughs> and in time for this show, 11 o'clock, that doesn't quite cut it. So, <laughs> although Liv got up in time for the show, which is good because she, uh, she tends to sleep in when she's not doing it. It Twitter is a feed. Sunday. Surely Sundays don't yeah, count absolutely. as part of the study. <laughs> not part of the study. Um, all right. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in just a few moments with, uh, our first two guests. They're, uh, you know, science, science and comedian kind of yanked together. We'll see what that looks like. It's going to be fun. It's part of the, the comedy festival, of course. So, uh, you're listening to Triple R. Hang in there. Three. Ah. Hey, you are listening to Triple R. I'm Dr. Shane, and in the studio with us now is Dr. David Farmer and Jackson Voorhead. Did I get it right, Jackson? That's pretty close. Not bad, not so bad. like 10%. Um, yeah. Now, you guys, are, you're in here because, of course, the comedy festival's uh, happening, and you've decided in some fit of, I don't know, um, you can bravery, stupidity, uh, that you're going to put on a comedy show about science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we thought, you know, I thought, you know, this is not funny shit, man. I don't know what's going <laughs> How on. How dare you, sir? <laughs> well, Catherine over here just told us she doesn't have a sense of humour. So she's the, she's the litmus test. If she doesn't laugh here, you guys are out. It's done. Oh, so you've been in my audience before. <laughs> <laughs> See? That's funny, and you laughed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. No, I'm, I'm not it. funny. I think I'm oh, not a not... funny person, but I love comedy. We laugh whenever you speak. Oh, well. So you don't have a sense of humour, but you love comedy. Yeah. That's How's that work? Uh, I'm not that kind of neuroscientist. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Some sort of dissociative disorder or something. Um, now, so what I thought we'd do first is, um, when, when's the show first? Let's just start off with that. What so the show, it's a, it's a short run. It's a, a three day run, actually. It's, uh, Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday of next week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the shows on the weekdays are late. They're 9.30, so okay. after the kids are in bed, very convenient. And the show on Saturdays at 6 p.m. in okay. Loop Bar in, yep. in east of the CBD. Cool. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited about it. Alrighty. Now, Dave, let's talk about your work because okay. this is, so this is the material you're using in the show, right? So, yeah, correct. So what do you do? Tell us about your work. Uh, so I am a neuroscientist, uh, by accident, but, um, now that I am a neuroscientist, I study the brainstem. So this is the part of the brain where you do really important, but not very sexy things like, 
breathing and blood pressure control and control of things like your kidneys and your mm-hmm. guts and things that people at the Neuroscience Institute I work at, the Flory, um, people who study consciousness or memory or emotion or any of those very fancy sexy things they would call what i do housekeeping but i don't think it's housekeeping i think well, it's why you're not dead yeah it's, yeah, it's yeah, really yeah. important yeah um so that's why i study okay so why you're not dead uh, jackson how's that funny well the key is the last word that dave left off why you're not dead yet okay <laughs> so we're we're trying to point out uh, that you know these are all things that the brain does while you're not paying attention essentially um and you're right that's not very funny <laughs> you guys are really selling the show. Yeah, that, well, right. Yeah. right? How, do, how do you? I mean, when, so when you go and speak to the audiences, because I mean, this is this is complicated stuff. I mean, you you've got to you've got to bring this home in a way that sort of makes people understand the work you're doing. Absolutely. So, so, so give give us a, a taste of that. I mean, because the brainstem. Okay, people get there. It does a lot of the sort of you know, it's the whole you know. I I know I blink, but I'm not conscious of it. You know, it's doing all these things that are important to me, but I'm not aware of it. Yeah. So. Absolutely. Um, so why is that funny? I mean, I don't know if it is funny. I mean, so what, why I want to do this show, I guess, is because neuroscience is always portrayed as this very lofty, mm. intellectual, we are the universe made conscious and we are, we are the universe asking questions about itself. By, by, other, by other neuroscientists. Not, Absolutely. Not by people Absolutely. from my field. And, and you know, well, that's as a comedian, we definitely are the universe made flesh. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just there to talk about me. Yeah. Dave's going to talk about the brain generally. And I'm going to talk about how awesome my particular brain is. Yeah, that sounds like a good topic. <laughs> it is a lovely brain. Yeah. So neuroscience is always portrayed in this way, and that's a really good conversation to have. But that's not my experience of my day-to-day and my job. Because hmm. So when I go to work, my problem is not that the problems are intellectual and lofty. My problems are practical problems. My problems are that brain cells are close together, incredibly numerous all look pretty much the same, if you'll forgive the casual racism, and are just unbelievably squishy. They're they're hard to handle and they're hard to study. And that's not an intellectual problem. That's a practical problem yeah. that I think anyone can understand. And that is, in fact, what I spend the vast majority of my time at work doing. And I think that's worth saying and pointing out the absurdity of. So this show, who who approached who for this? Were you thinking, my life is kind of weird and my job is much more boring than people think it is. I want to tell <laughs> someone about it. Or Jackson, did you say, I really need some material and I want a new challenge. Let's try and find a boring topic to make it funny. <laughs> I just, I resent all of this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> because you are very accurate. <laughs> Um, no, I think I, Dave came up with the show and approached me. I um, uh, I, t- I took a year off the comedy festival last year, so it's like my eighth time doing it. But I've I was saying to Dave before, I've never taught anyone anything, um, and I think it's a fascinating area where um, it seems like comedy is going in that direction a little bit. You get um, people doing you know philosophy stand-up shows and things like that, and it always has been a medium by which you can fake can convey big ideas so as soon as dave mentioned sort of tentatively after a few beers i was like yeah absolutely let's do that so would you measure the show as being successful if people laugh a lot or if people come out and say oh i learned three interesting facts about the brain so <laughs> i mean obviously you want both but well i'm i'm glad you asked <laughs> so um because you know the fact about the show why you're not dead yet is there's something in it for everyone <laughs> you know there's a bit of comedy there's a bit of storytelling there's a bit of straight up just here's some science and i hope you understand it and you have a nice time so all of those things i i want people to to learn it's it's comedutainment you know <laughs> if i can use a port is it still a port 
portmanteau if it's three words? I'm yeah, I think sure. it is. Okay. It's Dave, how much is this um, just therapy for you? How much of it is just therapy? A little bit. So yeah. one thing I like to talk about is the absurdity of being a neuroscientist. So if you're a neuroscientist, that means you have to go to parties. And I'm 33 and I still go to parties yeah, sometimes. You've got a couple of years left. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you meet someone, you say, hello, I'm David. And they say, hello, I'm Steve or Jeff or Yolanda or Henrietta or Sarah. You're not going to go through all the names. Yeah, all the names. I should have started alphabetically. Um, ben, Ralph, Barbie. Yeah. All the names. All the names. Keep going. Uh, Don't keep going. James, Jake, Jeff. Yeah. No, wait. Jackson. That's my name. Yes. Name okay. It. That's the end. All right. Um, and so you meet people and you have some party chat. You know, how do you know such and such? And, um, you know, blah, 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 blah. Everyone's having a fun time. And then eventually they'll say, so what do you do? And I say, usually like this, I'm a neuroscientist. <laughs> and then something in that person that you're talking to changes. Like, they stay and finish the conversation yeah. because social conventions, but their face kind of changes and their face, yeah. you get the impression that their face has like left the room. Yeah. Their face has walked out of the room and into the street. Well, it's because they're unconscious. <laughs> no. Well, well, so you should see that as a neuroscientist. Absolutely. You should, you should be able to tell. But I think the reason that that unconsciousness happens is because in many ways, I have won. I, I have won the conversation with the word neuroscientist. Right, yeah, yeah. Because at parties... It's a parties, checkmate move, yeah. Yeah. What, what do you got? I'm a neuroscientist. I mean, the only thing can come back really is I'm an astrophysicist. That might, exactly, you know, or an astronaut. But, yeah. yeah, yeah, something like that might yeah, beat you, but absolutely. otherwise, you know, neuroscientist trumps most things. It's the, it's the real flush. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's kind of nonsense, you know, um, because it has nothing to do with me or my merits as a person or a yeah. scientist. I could be terrible at both, at doing both of those things, and yeah. everything to do with the mystique of that job, like astronauting or neurosciencing or acting or being elon musk yeah um conveys mystique and it's nothing to do with me it's everything to do with the word I and i she, think it's good to dispel some of that myth yeah because lyndon does this a lot in this because she's a she's a climatologist and that trumps oh. pretty much everything these days yeah sometimes i say climate scientist and sometimes i say scientist <laughs> depending on which party i'm at <laughs> right but it does people you you'd be the one when everyone says what they do you know i'm, I'm plumber Catherine says physiotherapist and you rip that out even the neuroscientist will be left alone after you pulled it out i think yeah i think so i'll be directing people to you yeah <laughs> so yeah, i could good. win the conversation you win the conversation quite lonely <laughs> win the party yeah until there's no one left so guys uh how long's the show how long's uh how long is the actual show itself on the night? Oh, it's about an hour. An yeah, hour. However long it takes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and are there going to be slides? Uh, not really. <laughs> hey, that's not great. Really. Not really. There's kind of, I want to show a couple of pictures and that's about it. But no, it's not a PowerPoint show. It's a, it's a stand up storytelling fun show. It's just, it's going to be lovely. It's going to be fantastic. Guys, you must be nervous as shit. <laughs> is that I'm on a, Come on. Yeah, 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 you are. You've, you've done quite a bit. Oh, I can see myself. Nervous, I'm yeah. on a sinusoidal wave of triumph and despair. It's just peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs and peaks and troughs. <laughs> well, look, Maybe good. it's your use of the word sinusoidal that makes you win the party rather than the word neuroscientist. <laughs> I don't know. I'm impressed. Anyway. Yeah, I think, look, it sounds, it sounds like a lot of fun. Um, Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, and for where, where can people, I mean, we will tweet some stuff out. Uh, you guys can share something. We'll retweet it for you. Um, but where can people find information about the show? So there is a Facebook page, uh, Why You're Not Dead Yet. Um, Jackson has a Facebook page, Jackson Verhar Comedy. That's Verhar, two O's, two A's, because he has the best name yeah. in the world. Good luck spelling that. Uh, my Twitter <laughs> handle is at Ace of Daves. Jackson's is at Lanky Wordsmith. I think that's right. 
And if you want to come to the show, please buy tickets soon because I think there are three tickets left. <gasps> How many, yeah. are, there, are there four tickets in total? How many, how many tickets are there? Correct. We, we yeah. still have to sell 75% of the tickets, so yeah. please buy them quickly. <laughs> it took a long time to find that phone booth to yeah. perform in. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, the, the, the acoustics are right. You know, radio, we appreciate the acoustics. That's right. <laughs> David Farmer and Jackson Voyer, thanks so much for coming in. Good luck with the show. Thank um, you. I love to hear science in, infesting the comedy festival. I think it's fantastic. So, um, have fun and hopefully, uh, David, this will help with your issues with regards to neuroscience common, commentary at parties. Thanks for that, Shane. Thank you. <laughs> we're going to take a break for some music, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with another guest. We're going to be talking about some, uh, well, I was going to say more serious stuff, but neuroscience is serious. So, anyway, thanks for listening to Triple R. We'll be back in a sec. Three, triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein the Go-Go on 3RRR. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Marie Bismarck. She's from the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Marie, welcome to RRR. Thanks, Shane. Great to be here. It's good to have you in. We... um we know each other, of course, on the campus, but uh, we got you in because of some of the latest research that you've put out, which is quite um, quite fascinating. It's fascinating for Dr. Catherine sitting here because she's a physio, um, but you look at the risk associated of uh, various practitioners getting complaints. So can you talk us through how this normally works? So in the health system, how the complaints get registered and who keeps an eye on that sort of thing? Sure. So in Australia, we have 15 health professions, so everything from surgeons through to dentists, midwives, physiotherapists, Mm -hmm. and they're all regulated by an entity called APRA, and any member of the public can make a complaint to APRA if they're concerned about one of those health practitioners. Okay. And what's the process there? I mean, how how does that work? I mean, this is not like, you know, a get a shoddy thing at my local petrol station and, you know, and complain. I mean, how does, this is a very unusual system compared to what consumers normally interact with in, mm. in the sort of normal consumer space. Yeah, and it is confusing for consumers somewhere to know where to go. So what we would always suggest is that if you're worried about the health care you've received to go back to that person in the first instance. So mm-hmm. if um, you didn't understand something that your GP said or you feel like your surgeon may have done something inappropriate, try and address it with them directly first. After that, it really depends on what you want. So if you want an explanation or an apology, a health complaints commissioner is where you want to go. But if you're worried that the practitioner is unsafe and Mm. that other patients might be at risk, then you want to be going to APRA. Mm. Can we just go back to the first of those three for a moment? The the idea of consumers going back to... Mm. I mean, that seems like a big bridge to cross. Mm. Is there a lot of evidence that that's happening? Look, it's such a, a power imbalance. Yeah, it's a very difficult thing to do. You know, I've been working in this space for 15 years, mm. and when I'm worried about healthcare, I find it really hard to right. raise that with my practitioner. Um, one... As you may be able to tell from my accent, I'm from New Zealand. And one of the things that we have in New Zealand is a system of independent patient advocates who can help you to do that. They can either 
coach you on how to have that conversation or actually come with you to meet with your health practitioner to talk about the things that you're concerned about, whereas in Australia we don't really have an equivalent. Hmm. It seems as though in those circumstances the sort of relationship between the individual and the practitioner is very important to facilitate that, but the way we interact with the health system today is so sort of punctuated, as in you, you rarely have a great deal of time with any one practitioner, and so you don't build a rapport. I mean, it's interesting... Dr. Catherine, you probably, you know, as, as a physiotherapist, you probably build more rapport with patients than most because you see them repeated times over a protracted period. I mean, that, that must factor into how capable someone is to have that conversation when there's no real relationship there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think where there is an enduring relationship, um, the evidence would suggest that there's a better chance of being able to repair any misunderstandings and to restore that relationship. Mm. And it must be extremely complicated, for example, in the public hospital system where you actually have a number of different practitioners all working with that, that consumer um, to how would you tease out who to sort of make the complaint to or with or how do you navigate that system? And that's where many of the bigger hospitals have a patient liaison role, which is incredibly helpful. So that's a person who you can talk to within the hospital system who will actually guide you through that process. Mm. So let's talk about the the research itself you've done. Um, So you've looked at where all these complaints are coming and what do you see in that space when you when you sort of have a look at the landscape of complaints? Mm. So our research team has access to data on over 600,000 health practitioners. Wow. There are a huge number of health practitioners in Australia. So we know a little bit about who those practitioners are and where they work and also the kinds of complaints that they receive. And I guess um, for me one of the most striking findings in this work is the extent to which complaints are not evenly spread across practitioners that mm. they really cluster quite strongly among some small groups of practitioners. Uh, there's a guy called Jerry Hickson in the States who says that every health practitioner works under a cloud of potential complaints but that it rains more heavily on some than others. <laughs> yeah, you can imagine. I'm sure everyone listening can imagine certain people they've encountered where that rain falls heavily. Um, and, and what, what areas do you see that in? I mean, are there, so what groups stand out? Mm, so some of the groups that we've looked at, um, we recently looked at older doctors. The medical board had been talking about whether there should be additional checks on the fitness to practice of older doctors. And it seemed like that's a question that would be great to actually have some evidence on the Mm. answer. So we analysed complaints about doctors over the age of 65 compared with their younger peers and we found that for the older doctors there was about a 40% increased risk of complaints. Well, that's pretty significant. Mm. I mean, I assume, I'm sorry, not knowing the numbers, I'm assuming that is a very significant amount. Yeah, it certainly is significant. And I assume the majority of these older doctors are male as well, would that be correct? Yeah, that's right. So that was one really important thing we needed to do was to adjust for the sex of the doctors because we already know that male doctors are much more likely than female doctors to receive complaints and that with the new doctors who are graduating, they're about 50-50 male and female, but the older doctors are much more likely to be male. Hmm. So one of the really important things that we did in our study was we adjusted for the sex of the doctor and even after after you control for the percentage of older doctors who are male, you still see that increased risk. Hmm. When you when you look at that, I mean, I know this is not specifically the data you looked at, but do you do you know why that is the case? I mean, is this cognitive decline? Is this they grew up in a different system and the current mm. system or what 
consumers expect just doesn't match that? I mean, do you have a feel for the, the reasoning? I think it's a bit of both, Shane. So what we saw is that for the older doctors compared with the younger doctors, they had about 15 times the risk of a complaint about cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time, those concerns came to APRA from a colleague rather than from a patient. I think it's a very hard thing for a patient to say. I think perhaps my surgeon is in the early stages of dementia, right. whereas I think it's often colleagues who are better placed to, to see it. that somebody yeah. is starting to have some lapses in their judgment or some other indications of some early cognitive decline. Hmm. And with with this information, I mean, what what do you do? I mean, you mentioned they're, they're sort of looking at sort of uh, retraining or, or assessing. Hmm. Um, is that happening now? Or and and I mean, what what does that mean for for some of these doctors? I mean, at what point do you say to someone, look, you know, you're 67 years old, it's time to walk away. So I think that the research that we did has really helped to create the evidence base for the medical board to be able to say, actually, over the age of 70, we think that we should be checking the fitness to practice of these doctors. There are lots of older doctors who are practicing very safely mm. and whose patients love them. Yeah. But I think the risks that we were seeing were enough that um, the medical board are now saying over the age of 70, doctors are going to have regular health checks and also some kinds of checks on their their competence and performance. Mm. Marie, what, have you looked at how isolated particular doctors are? Is there a factor of whether people are working in a major metropolitan city and, and exposed to lots of professional development and the latest evidence compared to someone who might be very isolated in their profession? Is there anything? Mm. And, and maybe older doctors are in that area? Look, that's a fantastic question. We would love to have that data. Um, the medical board don't collect information about how many colleagues each doctor has, mm. but the legal services board do. So we thought, well, actually, there's a lot of parallels between doctors and lawyers, so let's look at the lawyers' data. And what we found among lawyers is that the size of your law firm is one of the strongest protectors against complaints, that lawyers who are in sole or very small practices are at much higher risk of complaints than lawyers working in large law firms. Mm, what about data on the people who make the complaints? Just thinking about the different generations within the public, you know, whether uh, younger generations are more or less likely to make complaints. Do you have information about that which can help shape future yeah, studies? So it's been a few years since I looked at that data, but one study we were able to do is we looked at um, thousands and thousands of medical records in New Zealand to identify all the patients who had been harmed by medical care, and we then followed them up for five years to see out of all the patients who were harmed, who went on to make a complaint. And what we found is that elderly patients were less likely to complain. Patients from ethnic minorities were significantly less likely to complain. And patients from lower socioeconomic backgrounds were less likely to complain. And I think those are incredibly important findings. Mm. And I think we need a system that can hear the voices of those patients as well as those who have the confidence and means to be able to make a complaint. Mm. Now, Marie, before we let you go, I also want to touch on the other area you've been working on, which is, was it physiotherapists, chiropractors and osteopaths? That's right. And which of those get all the complaints? You didn't put the, the Reiki people in there. 
We didn't put the Reiki people in I'm there. I'm disappointed. In that. <laughs> Not I'm a disappointed. registered health profession, although I, traditional Chinese medicine is a registered health yeah, profession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what we found is that there were really stark differences in the rates of complaints about those groups, with chiropractors receiving about six times more complaints than the physiotherapists and osteopaths somewhere in the middle. Why is that? Do we know? I would love to know the answer to that question. So we were able to look a bit at the kinds of complaints that they received. Um, the chiropractors were receiving many more complaints about advertising, so clearly some concerns about from members of the public and perhaps from other health practitioners that some chiropractors in Australia are making claims about what chiropractic treatment can cure that are mm. not supported by the evidence. Okay, okay. It, it seems to me as though we're moving, slowly moving towards a scenario where healthcare is going to have the same sort of treatment from the consumer as everything else. I mean, we've watched other, other areas like telecommunications go through this where Australia's moved from a government run telecommunications company, good luck complaining, um, to one where frankly the consumers are in control. Do, do you see that transition happening in health? Because it's, we're a long way from yeah. that at the moment, but it, kind of is the way to get it working properly. I think on the whole we are starting to see a little bit more of that consumer movement but there's a still a long time, long way mm. to go and so you think of the example of the telecommunication services that if you make a complaint to the telecommunications ombudsman usually within a few days they will have responded to help you resolve that complaint mm. whereas for some of these medical regulators these investigations can take upwards yes, of a year over a year which is incredibly <laughs> stressful yeah. for the patient who's made the complaint but also for the practitioner who's on the receiving end of that mm. complaint mm. so i think we have a long way to go in terms of making this um a smooth and supportive process, both for the patients and for the practitioners. Hmm. It, it's I, I know having gone through a complaint process myself in that you know there was something like fourteen months, and the only word I was I would use at the end of that is unsatisfied. Like with the the, the mm. whole process, we really didn't work well. I think the the difference in the consumer space with other areas is consumers have so much choice and control and control over how their money's spent. Whereas in the health system, that's not the case, which is very problematic. That's right. And mm. I think that's part of why our research is so important, that if you don't have a lot of choice over which health practitioner you see, you need to be assured that they are going to be good enough. And, and I mean, sorry, just to I mean, almost finish on a, on a good note, I mean, your, your data shows that physiotherapists actually, you know, are bloody good at not getting complaints, right? I mean, this is, we yeah. don't hear that part though. That's right. And we spend a lot of time talking about the hotspots of risk and not a lot of time thinking about the practitioners who are actually getting this right. Mm. So the nursing profession and the physiotherapy profession are two professions that really stand out as having very low rates of complaints. And it's not that they do, they're not, um, they do a lot of patient interactions. So physios and nurses are working face to face with patients every day. And and yet their rates of complaints are much lower than for other professions. Have you normalised those rates of complaints relative to patient contact time? Because especially for nurses, I mean, that's got to be like tenfold above most of the surgeons. Yeah, so one of the real strengths of our study is we had access to information on clinical hours worked, which doesn't tell you exactly how many patients these groups are say seeing, but it gives you a pretty good indication of how much client contact mm. they have. Interesting. All right, Marie, thanks so much for coming in. This is really important work, and I think um, you are going to be held to account to keep us safe in the future. Thanks, Shane. Week. Great talking to you all. Associate Professor Marie Bismarck from the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Three, triple, ah.
Yeah, you are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. We've got about 11 minutes left. And we have our final guest in the studio, Dr. Karen Freelich. She's from the Jean Howells Research Unit at Monash University. Karen, thanks so much for coming into the studio today. Thanks for having me here. Now, you, um, you work in quite a few interesting areas. And I want to start off by talking, first of all, about your podcast program, because this is something that I, I'm just fascinated with the way people do this. So you've got a podcast called Humorous Hacks. Tell yes. us all about that. So Humorous Hacks, humorous is spelt like the bone. It's a yep. little play on words there. So I guess it's the main point is to have fun and interesting ways to teach medicine. Okay. Uh, so I graduated medical school only a couple of years ago, so very fresh out of medical school. Was it fun? <laughs> there were good parties. There were okay. good parties. Okay. <laughs> uh, but often medical education is quite dry, mm. and there's a lot of it as well. Who are the guests? Sorry? Who would have guessed? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we started Humorous Hacks as a way to make medical education a bit more fun, uh, have a lot of mnemonics, a lot of puns, very... Um, it's very much me and my friend and a couple of guest stars coming in and trying to explain medicine in a more interesting way. Okay. Now, the mnemonics, how, I mean, how does that work? I've, I always get a bit edgy when someone says to me, look, um, don't think of DNA and genes in that. Think of a library and shelves and books and, <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, just tell me the actual stuff. It's less to know. How do you, how do you go about getting a mnemonic that works for someone learning this complicated stuff? How does that work? So one real pet peeve of mine is when people have acronyms. Yep. So they have an acronym to remember something, and then you have to remember the acronym. And often <laughs> exactly. the acronym is more complex, right? Because yeah. it's you know A stands for atypical presentations, and you know what does that mean? Yeah. So I find that that I try to put that aside, and we try to have stories more than anything else. Doesn't always work with anything. I can give a bit of an example. Yes, please do. Sure. So, so you teach us something with a mnemonic. <laughs> So I'll use the antibiotic gentamicin. Okay. Yeah, and I'll assume out of anyone listening, probably has no idea what gentamicin is. It's yes, an antibiotic. Well, there's three, that is three, a fair there's, assumption. There's three people out there that just got excited. Yeah. Everyone else is like, what the? So if you're, you're in medical school, you're a junior doctor or you're a nurse and you need to understand what gentamicin is, I use a story, right? So gentamicin sounds like gentleman. Right? Okay. So gentamicin binds to a 30S ribosomal subunit. <laughs> what on earth does that mean? But it's in all the medical school exams. You have to remember 30S. So I think, okay, you've got gentamicin, a gentleman, got this stock standard gentleman wearing a suit, a 30-year-old man. Yeah, 30, 30S, 30-year-old man, right? Got this 30-year-old man in a suit. You picturing him? And he's this real negative guy. He's, he's not a very nice guy, really negative attitude towards life. Sorry, I was pitching myself until you got to that bit. <laughs> They're still uh, laughing because they know I'm not 30. Mm. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so 30-year-old man, really negative. Why? Because it's gram-negative cover. So you're imagining this 30-year-old negative gentleman. But he happens to be married to a woman called Stephanie. Yeah? Staph, like staphylococcus, which is a gram-positive. So gentamicin covers mostly gram-negative, but it has one gram-positive cover, and that's staph. Yeah? Right? So we've got this picture. But the gentleman and Stephanie really fight a lot because he's very negative mostly and she's positive. And when they fight, Stephanie has her hands on her ears and the gentleman is his hands on his hips. Why? Because okay. you get ototoxicity, so ear issues, and hands on hips is where your kidneys are, so you get kidney issues, so nephrotoxicity. So overall, what have we got? A 30-year-old hmm. man, so 30S fibrosonal subunit, uh, very negative, so a gram-negative cover, 
His wife is staff, so the one positive he covers. And the complications are ear problems and kidney problems. I like it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that kind of works. We need some of these in climate change. <laughs> okay. You need to talk to uh, Karen here and get some... Uh, yeah. So is the podcast targeted towards medical students or is it for the general public? So quite interestingly, when we started it, we were actually medical students. It was meant for medical students. Uh, we had many medical students listening to it. And then over the years, we now have a lot of physio students, nursing students, um, I guess pharmacy students as well. But quite interestingly, more and more people from the general public who, mm. let's say, they've just been diagnosed with Crohn's disease and they listen to our podcast to try and figure out what that is. Um, so we had a lot of feedback from people in general public who have, you know, learnt a lot from it. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. I mean, mo- most of the I, I've, I've listened to a few medical uh, podcasts over the years, and to be honest, most of my I, I disengage with fairly quickly yes. because they, much like the system itself, they become very self-serving and mm. you know, sort of talking to themselves a lot. There's yeah. a few good ones out there, but most of them are talking to themselves a lot. So it's, it's it's good to hear there's some you know educational ones. Now let's talk a bit about your research work around contraception use in Australia. I mean, this is something that. Uh, well, uh, uh, how are we going? Is Australia are we leading the pack in <laughs> contraception use? Not quite. We're pretty good, but what's particularly interesting about contraception and something completely different to you know speaking about gentamicin? Yeah, right. New moments. Um, yep. um, is that in Australia, a lot of people are using contraception. So if you t- take in, in the sample that we uh, had, which was 1,544 people from the ages of 18 to 51 across Australia, out of the people who are, you know, quotation marks, at risk of pregnancy, that is having partners of the opposite sex and wanting, I'm sorry, and currently not pregnant at the time, around one in seven aren't using contraception. Okay. So most people are using contraception. Yep. But when you break that down, there's contraception, there's contraception, right? So there's really effective methods, so things like long-acting reversible contraception, so LARC. Those are things like Marina IUD or Implanon or even permanent methods. Mm-hmm. And then you've got things that are much less effective, so quotation marks again, but natural methods, so withdrawal, fertility awareness and condoms. So many people are using contraception, but not many people are using actually effective contraception. Okay. So you would put condoms in a non-effective category there? Yeah, I'd put them as less effective overall. Uh, so although, and I should really make this clear, our study was based on pregnancy risk, not SDI risk. So okay. for sure, condoms are the most important thing for SDI risk. But as a pregnancy prevention tool, condoms aren't aren't very effective. How, one, one of the things I always love to do is, Give the example of radiation, and you know, and I can sort of say, you know, the radiation levels of you getting a CT scan versus a plane versus a picnic at Chernobyl. I can tell you what those numbers are mm-hmm. and give you relative risks. Yeah. When, whenever I hear these things in in healthcare, I always I always worry about what those relative risks are. I mean, can you give us a feel for where that sits for things, you know, like the use of condoms versus the use of other more permanent me- methods? I mean, where's the what are the num? How do the numbers stack up? Is it you know one percent versus seven versus fifty or yep. You know, how does that work? Sure. Well, we can talk about, I guess, the most effective methods. Mm. So permanent contraceptions, you know, getting your tubes tied um, or a vasectomy are above 99% effective. So really, really effective. Um, Things like Marina IUD and Implanon are... 99.8 and 99.85% effective. So really, really effective um, at stopping pregnancy. The pill 
is very effective when you use it properly, mm. but the average user only has about 91, 92% effectiveness. Because people often forget the pill, it might have interaction with other drugs, uh, they might have a bout of diarrhea and it doesn't go through their system properly. Mm. Condoms, uh, somewhere comes sitting around the 80% effective. Okay. Because there's, I guess, a lot of user failure rate. But quite significantly, uh, the least effective methods are things like withdrawal or fertility-based, um, fertility awareness-based methods. So things like planning out your cycle right. or measuring mucus levels, which are only around 76% effective. Mm. Meaning that if 100 women were to use them in a one-year period, you know, 24 yeah. of, a lot of those pregnancies. would get pregnant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a lot. That's a lot, yeah. yeah. How does this research sort of help inform uh, family planning in developing countries? I know you say you're just looking at Australia, but I can imagine this kind of work is done all over the world. Mm -hmm. Is is this going to help inform strategies for helping with family planning in developing countries? So my research was specifically based around Australia, but I think what you can take from that and what's quite interesting is essentially which groups of people pick various methods, right? And... Essentially, I think the most important thing is for people to be aware of what method is is appropriate for their lifestyle. So, for example, uh, people who found religion to be very important to their fertility choices were more likely to use things like fertility awareness-based methods mm. as a contraceptive method because, you know, yeah. it may not be appropriate for their religion to use other methods. But the other thing that we found really interesting is that it's really quite appropriate for a lot of people to look into the options of using a marina IUD and Implanon, but aren't currently using them. So in Australia, mostly, I guess, older people are using IUDs, but they're very safe for people who are younger and mm. haven't had a pregnancy before. So looking at, I guess, the broader population in the world, it is actually quite appropriate to advocate for things like long-acting reversible contraception, so marinas and Implanons in broader populations and they're much more effective last a lot longer yeah. Karen we're going to have to wind up because we're about to hand over to the team from either but thank you so much for coming in I mean this is really interesting stuff and good luck with the podcast Humorous Hacks people uh, look it up you should be able to find it easily Karen it's great to talk to you thanks for having me Dr. Karen Freelich is from the Gene Howells Research Unit at Monash University. Folks, we're going to have to hand over to Edith. Dr. Catherine, great to see you again. Thank you, Dr. Shane. It's been a really good morning. It has. We've had fun. And your sense of humour is, is just, it's kicking. We love it's it. Improving. It's improving. It's, it's, it's amazing. We <laughs> love it. Lyndon and I love month. it. Lyndon, good to see you. You too, Dr. Shane. Everyone enjoy the uh, Melbourne autumn this Yeah. Afternoon. We'll get you to talk about that at some stage. I think it'd be good to unpack what the hell's going on. And Liv, thanks for doing our Twitter feed. If you're wondering um, what the tracks were we played, they're up on the Triple I website today, folks. We're going to hand out over now to eat it thank you very much for listening to triple r and we'll chat to you again next week this has been a podcast from free triple r 102.7 fm in melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at rrr.org.au